Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Ever wonder how we can wrap our minds around the spread of disinformation on social media? That's our topic today. And stick around after the interview. Casey Kalman is here with some important information about COVID-19 vaccines. On March 16th, eight people, six of whom were Asian women, were killed in a shooting spree across three Asian-owned spas around Atlanta. These attacks, which come at a time when COVID-19 disinformation has already inflamed anti-Asian hate crimes, are fueled by the United States' long-standing legacy of systemic racism. Our goal at Got Science is to show how science can make the world a better place. That means we must acknowledge that Black, Indigenous, people of color have been harmed, and systemic racism has been upheld in the name of science. One particularly egregious example is the Tuskegee experiment, which ran from 1932 to 1972. Researchers wanting to study the progression of syphilis recruited hundreds of black men who were not informed about the true purpose of the study. They were given placebo treatments and became subject to medical experimentation disguised as, quote, free medical care. Fifteen years into the study, penicillin had become widely available as a safe and effective treatment for syphilis, but the study participants with the disease were not treated. This infamous ethical breach has caused an understandable distrust of public health officials in Black communities. But there are bad actors online who have nothing to contribute to conversations about racism in public health, who only seek to exploit this distrust on social media. Today, the hashtag Tuskegee Experiments is being used to spread fear and disinformation among Black communities surrounding vaccines for COVID-19. During a pandemic that already disproportionately impacts Black people, this targeted disinformation can do a lot of damage. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Our guest, Erin McAweeny, can explain what's happening much better than I can. Erin is a senior research analyst at Graphica, a company that does social media analysis. She studies data from online conversations to understand how conversations get manipulated and disinformation spreads. She explains how the anti-vax community uses hashtag Tuskegee experiments and other methods to target Black communities online and spread disinformation. And Erin's social media disinformation research isn't limited to vaccines. She's also studying the rise of QAnon, wildfire conspiracies, and climate change deniers. I ask Erin what kinds of stories the data can tell, what it looks like when disinformation spreads into vulnerable communities, and why she still believes social media is a platform worth protecting. Erin, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I am excited to be here. So disinformation is rampant on social media. I think that's a fair statement to make. And you work at a company that does social media analysis. Can you tell me what that is and kind of how you go about doing that? Yeah. So I work at a company called Graphica. We are a network analysis firm. And what that means is we build out maps or landscapes of a conversation online. And we use these maps to detect attempts to manipulate online conversations. And this manipulation can be 
foreign interference in democratic processes, uh, fringe conspiracies becoming more mainstream, or detecting how health misinformation might spread through a network into vulnerable populations. And we do this by, first of all, collecting a lot of social media data. This tends to be Twitter data. And we will build a network based on shared interests, shared behaviors, and shared followers between accounts. And so you might have seen a network graph before, and sometimes it'll just look like a hairball, um, and it's kind of chaotic, and it's hard to tell what's going on. And our graphs instead are clustered, not just based on content sharing. So sometimes you'll see a network graph that is based on retweet who's retweeting who, and that can end up looking again like that sort of hairball. We will uh, create network graphs based on similar, again, interests and behaviors and follows. And so you start to get these very well-defined clusters of accounts. You know, if we're talking about health misinformation, that can be accounts that are following similar influencers that tend to spread COVID-19 mis- and disinformation. Or you'll get a set of accounts that are commonly sharing a particular source of anti-vaccine articles. Let's use an actual example to illustrate how this happens. Mm -hmm. And I think anti-vaccination misinformation is so prevalent right now. Tell me how you would go about analyzing those conversations. Yeah, definitely. So I would take a, a map, like I just described that Graphica will build, that map will be scoped around hashtags that are common to the anti-vaccine conversation in the COVID-19 context. That will be, for instance, Bill Gates' bioweapon or mandatory vaccination. So we collect accounts that are engaging with that conversation through these hashtags. A map will be built off of that. And then I can start to identify you know, within this network of the anti-vaccine conversation that we've built, uh, we'll start to identify various clusters of anti-vaccination accounts. So what we can think of as the anti-vaccination community online. And once we have those clusters identified, that community identified, we can really start to explore, first of all, from a network standpoint. So I would first look at the, the structure of that cluster that could be influencers within that cluster who is central to that cluster maybe um, that's based on who has the most followers within that cluster maybe who is bridging what accounts are bridging from one cluster to another so for example if we're worried about content spreading from the anti-vaccination group into say a black community or a, a cluster of healthcare workers these are communities that are vulnerable to anti-vaccination rhetoric, there are certain accounts that we can see that help bridge that content and facilitate that flow of information between that problematic community, that anti-vax community, to that vulnerable population. So how would you see that happening? Would you then see in those vulnerable communities that hashtag being used? Yeah, exactly. This can be based on content ranging from articles being shared, again, to certain hashtags that might be associated with a campaign. Uh, we could then 
Since we have identified accounts as bridges, we'll start to closely monitor those accounts and pay special attention to those accounts. That might be if they're using certain hashtags that are targeting, say, that Black community, um, you know, hashtag Tuskegee Experiments is one that is a well-worn example and and one that we come across a lot that is um, commonly used to spread fear and misinformation targeting the Black community surrounding vaccination. Uh, It it could be articles that are targeting that community, you know, and, and we're able to because we have these communities outlined and clustered, we can start to pay attention to the types of content that is flowing through those different communities. So if there is an uptick in articles from a problematic domain or an uptick in a hashtag that might be carrying over from that anti-vax group, then we consider that to be a spreading of anti-vax rhetoric into adjacent communities. What sort of story does the data tell? You know, it tells a different story every time. I worked on a project with the labs group. They work on more theory and then applied science to help researchers and analysts answer questions. So I worked with that group to look at the spread and convergence of QAnon throughout the summer with groups in our COVID-19 map. There was a lot of reporting at that time of how the pandemic helped to accelerate membership to QAnon, the conspiracy group. And there was a, a huge uptake of both use of language and hashtags associated with QAnon that happened online during the summer. This was when the Black Lives Matter protests were going on. This is when there was a lot of rhetoric and disinformation about Antifa going on. And also this is when misinformation and disinformation and conspiracies concerning the pandemic continued to spread. And so there was a lot of reporting and researchers that had noted this major increase in QAnon-related content being shared online. So I worked with researchers in the, in the Graphica Labs group to track how, to really see on a network level, how did this happen? How did QAnon, within the context of COVID-19, how did it spread Was it from a network perspective? Where did it start? Where is it now within the COVID-19 conversation? And when I say it, I mean the the cluster of QAnon accounts or essentially the QAnon community that we have mapped online. So we used a series of COVID-19 maps that were created every month since the beginning of the pandemic. And we were able to look at six months of data just around who was talking about COVID-19 and what the networks were each month. And you could see this fringe group of QAnon accounts before back in February and March uh, when we had our first COVID-19 maps. We even saw that there was a small cluster within the larger Trump support group. Over time, this fringe group came out of that Trump support cluster and it, and it became its own group that started to become increasingly more central to that network. And how we did this was a mix of, again, network analysis, natural language processing, and a method called cultural bridging. And using that natural language processing, we saw a huge uptake of language related to QAnon, not only in that 
growing group, but also in those adjacent groups that were within that COVID-19 map. And this really happened right around when the pandemic documentary was released. And this is something that many researchers and reporters have theorized accelerated, helped accelerate conspiratorial thought and content being shared. And we could see that in our maps and the data that was produced from this natural language processing method. We could see a huge increase in QAnon language. And again, most worrisome, not just within the group itself, but we could see it spreading throughout adjacent groups within the COVID-19 map. So it's a story, but it is a it is an unsettling story, which tends <laughs> yes. to be the stories that we see at Graphica in this line of work. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, PRX, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you're enjoying Got Science, we've got another podcast you might like, The Longest Year, a mini-series from the PBS NewsHour podcast, America Interrupted. Through the voices of people across the country, America Interrupted, The Longest Year, is the story of the challenges, uncertainty, and loss we've faced one year into the pandemic, and where we go from here. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get back to our interview. How can you tell if an account is real or fake and how do bots play into this? So networks can tell us a lot about potentially coordinated or fake behavior among fake accounts. Sometimes we'll come across a tight-knit cluster that may be unusual for a network and that will lead us to a a set of accounts to further investigate whether we see behaviors that might lead us to believe that an account is fake. For example, all of the accounts within this cluster are created on the same day, or they might all have the same profile photo, or they may only have, say, a few friends, and they all those few friends are all within that tight-knit cluster, or they're sharing what we call like copy-pasta messages, so clearly just the same sentence or sentences that are copy and pasted um, between one account and another pushing out and trying to amplify a similar message. So one of those things taken individually cannot immediately identify whether something's a bot or whether something's a fake account, but taken together, um, you know, through this inv- an investigative process and through investigative methods, we can start to paint a picture and have a, a better confidence around whether an account or a set of accounts is is fake, is has a malicious intent, or is trying to amplify mis- or disinformation. It's hard to differentiate, I will say, between a normal conversation because normal online conversations are bizarre. <laughs> and they we can't just assume that a bizarre conversation must be malicious or must be a troll. So there will, there will always be this element of mixed methods of like having a human that can manually investigate that goes into identifying perhaps a a botnet or a set of paid bot accounts or paid fake accounts run by a few people. As much as I would love to have the bot button that I can just hit and it will light up all of the bots, <laughs> we, we can't do that. And there will always be that downside to over-quantifying really messy online 
human behavior. Do you have a sense of what percentage of bots are out there compared to real accounts? I'm trying to understand how serious the bot Um, You know, I've seen estimates around specific conversations. There have been papers that, of course, come out around how many bots are in the climate denial conversation, how many bots are in the anti-vaccine conversation. But again, I, I kind of take those estimates with a grain of salt because going through 100,000 accounts by hand to check whether um, it appears that there's coordination across those accounts just really is almost impossible to do, to do it thoroughly and to do it well. And again, there's downsides to doing that. We have seen maybe people who aren't first language English speakers because maybe there is some like semantic variations in how they're typing. They might be identified as a bot or just weird. If someone is tweeting over a certain volume per day, that might be totally authentic. There's no like hard and set threshold of how how much somebody can be tweeting before they're identified as a bot. And so I think taking the care to manually go through and and use these investigative processes to identify to a certain confidence level, whether what we see is fake or inauthentic or coordinated, protects everybody on the internet. I think it protects people from being maybe wrongfully deplatformed that are a part of a genuine grassroots cause. And that is the opposite of what we're trying to do. You've done a lot of work looking at climate disinformation across networks. Can you tell me about that work and what you're seeing? Yes. So for a year now, we've worked with a coalition of groups, the Union of Concerned Scientists being one of them. And we have mapped the climate conversation landscape. This includes clusters of climate deniers, and it includes groups of pro-climate science and pro-environmental groups, uh, organizations, and individuals that are uniquely interested in the climate conversation. So on the climate denial uh, front, I will say what's unique to this group is that they it is such a small group, and it really appears to uh, that their main objective is to make it seem like there is outsized support for this fringe belief that climate change isn't real or that climate science is is false. And making it appear that there is a false equivalency between the pro-environmental organizations and accounts and pro-climate science accounts and the argument against that, which is so small and diminished compared to that pro-science online group, that a lot of their behavior just is centered around amplifying and pushing out climate denial content and making it appear as if there is this outsized support. So I think what's most worrisome that we've seen over the last year, given this goal, is that they've become increasingly tied to, and this is on a network level, they've become increasingly tied to conservative and conspiratorial groups online. So the most recent map that we've done, there was a large QAnon group within the climate conversation that we've never seen before. And we've, on a individual level, we've seen influencers like Naomi Seipt start to embrace QAnon as far as the the conspiracies around child trafficking, the political conspiracies, as well as using that to support her climate denial stances. And when this small climate denial group appears to have 
support from these adjacent groups. We've seen in the past that when an instance takes place where all of their priorities align, I think the fires over the summer on the West Coast are a great example of this. When those fires were going on, the Black Lives Matter protests were also happening, and along with a lot of unfounded conspiracies concerning Antifa. And when the fires started, uh, we saw both from the QAnon networks and from conservative networks start to push the conspiracy that Antifa had started these fires. And this was supported by articles from the right-wing media, uh, media ecosystem and decontextualized videos. And all of this content spread rapidly. And of course, the climate denial group also started participating in amplifying the sort of drumbeat of Antifa and wildfire conspiracies. The the climate denial groups were saying that Antifa is the real climate alarmism and pushing their rhetoric around climate alarmism. And really the the insular borders that we that we see around the climate denial group that usually is quite tight knit, quite sort of a echo chamber in which they're really just sharing one another's content. Those borders started to open up to conservative influencers like Andy No, who is a known. Antifa provocateur often spreads mis and disinformation around Antifa. We saw him starting to retweet a climate denier who was calling Antifa the real, you know, the real climate alarmism. So that behavior is problematic and certainly needs to be curbed because we can see how easily it will devolve into chaos. And we wouldn't really be able to see this without that that network perspective of understanding how groups adjacent to one another can start to amplify one another's messages once their goals align. How would you like to see your work impact the social media landscape in the next three to five years? I, I truly believe that the internet can still be a tool for marginalized voices to be heard, to be given a, a, better, a bigger me- megaphone. I hope with this work that we, you know, continue to shine light on the dark corners of the internet in order to fight the manipulation and the deceit that's happening online to open up those spaces for what I believe is still a incredibly powerful tool for marginalized voices. And in a practical sense, in the next three to five years, I really see the field moving towards a more formalized methods, some some more standards, because it's building the, uh, what's a good metaphor? Building the plane as we take off, whatever that metaphor is. So you spend a lot of dark time in the darker corners of social media. What, what social media do you use for fun or as a palate cleanser? Oh, <laughs> um, the iBleach subreddit is, tends to be my go-to after a long day of work. <laughs> Uh, um, yeah, I'm not, I actually don't use social media all that much. I'm pretty quiet. I I haven't touched my Facebook in like years and I'm pretty quiet on Instagram. I think I use the messaging capabilities of these tools to stay in touch with like friends and family. And I would say that's the, the, um, major extent of my, and to, to like creep on Twitter. I'm constantly on Twitter. I never post on Twitter, but I am just a fly on the wall reading everything people post on Twitter. <laughs> so somehow this does not surprise me at all that you're, <laughs> that you're not yeah. a big social media user. 
Before I did this interview, I was a little reluctant because I think what you do is terrifying, but it's been really fun talking to you today. Super informative, and it is encouraging to know that what's going on online is being looked at so carefully because when we gather that information and that data, that's sort of the first step to solving some of the problems with it. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I, that's been, it's been really, really interesting. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me and giving me the uh, time and space to talk about what Graphica does. I really enjoy talking to you as well. Disinformation is the worst. Back in the 90s, when I started hearing about a new technology that could connect us via our computers, I thought that once we were all online with easy access to information, we'd achieve some kind of universal shared truth and understanding. But the 90s were a long time ago. Disinformation spreads so fast now, and when it drowns out the factual information about life-saving vaccines that could slow down or even end the COVID-19 pandemic, well, disinformation is deadly. Fortunately, many of my colleagues are experts both in identifying and shutting down disinformation campaigns with facts and science. Research analyst Anita Desikan and research associate Casey Kalman have been working with UCS partner organizations to promote the real truth about vaccines for COVID-19 for a wide range of audiences. Here's Casey to talk about their work. Thanks, Colleen. So our team identified that there was a need to provide answers to frequently asked questions about the COVID-19 vaccines, all in one spot and backed up by the best independent science. We created a full suite of information about the vaccines, including questions and answers in English and Spanish, and videos of Anita and me answering some of the most common questions, also in English and Spanish. It is clear that many people of color, especially Black people in the U.S., have been mistreated by the medical establishment in both the past and in the present, and may feel distrustful and, at the same time, frustrated by the fact that communities of color have less access to the vaccine than white communities. That's why we worked with community partners representing Black and Latinx communities to put together this FAQ. Our partners came to us concerned about vaccine disinformation they were hearing and wanted us to build a resource that answers simply and clearly what the best available science is on COVID-19 vaccines. Shout out to Comunidad Latina de Vachon and the Greater Cleveland Congregations for putting in so much time and energy on this project with us. Just to be clear, recent polling data in the U.S. conducted by the online polling company civics.com shows that white Americans are more reluctant than Black and Latinx Americans to say they plan to get the vaccine. And disinformation online targets everyone. So our FAQ is a resource for people from all walks of life. Here's a Q&A that you'll find at act.ucsusa.org slash vaccine FAQ. The question is, should I be concerned that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine's effectiveness is lower than the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines? Our answer is, a vaccine does not need to be 100% effective to be considered a good vaccine. The annual flu vaccine, which is designed to protect people from flu strains and slow the spread of flu epidemics, is usually 40-60% to 60 effective. In June 2020, the FDA stated that, in order to be approved by the agency, a COVID-19 vaccine would have to prevent disease or decrease disease severity in at least 50% of the people who are vaccinated. While the numbers may differ between the three vaccines, 
All three are considered extremely good at preventing you from getting the worst COVID-19 symptoms. Specifically, the J&J vaccine is 100% effective at preventing fatal cases of COVID-19 and is 85% effective at stopping severe COVID-19 symptoms that can result in hospitalization. The FDA noted that the J&J vaccine may be somewhat less effective in preventing illness in adults older than 60 who also had medical risk factors, but this finding was not certain and requires more research. In December 2020, J&J started a clinical trial to test a two-dose regime, which Dr. Anthony Fauci said could further increase the vaccine's effectiveness. That's just one of the 26 questions and answers you'll find when you go to act.ucsusa.org slash vaccine FAQ. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Special thanks to Aaron McAweeny. Our vaccination FAQ segment was brought to you by Casey Coleman. Editing by Colleen McDonald. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth and Jayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Thanks. Stay safe, get your vaccination, and see you next time. <laughs>